0: You say, Paul, you were beaten, Paul, you were starved, Paul, you were lashed, Paul, you were driven out of cities, Paul, you nearly drowned in the Mediterranean, you were hated by your own Jewish brethren, and the Gentiles despised you as well, and you had 35 years of this stuff, and he calls it momentary light affliction. How could he say such a thing? Because he's comparing this life in light of the next.
1: The love that God has for his children is a love that surpasses not only our understanding, but a love that will never, ever be broken, regardless of the situations we face or however we may have let God down. Hi, this is Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogi. Doctor Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of chapter 8 in our study of the book of Romans, and as we pick up today, Pastor Carl addresses the uniqueness of Christ, the resurrected Savior, and the importance of that in comparison to any other religion or so-called God.
0: Not only is the resurrection important because it is a declaration of who Jesus is, what makes our faith different from all the other faiths of the world, and all the other faiths of the world, therefore false faiths is because Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. All the great religious leaders of the world are dead, but Jesus is alive. It's one of the best demonstrated facts of history. It's central to the preaching of the Bible because crucifixion was not unique, but resurrection was. Yes, there were some individuals who were raised out of death back into a natural body, but Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first ever to come out of the grave, and every calendar marks that historical event as B.C. before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of the Lord. But not only is it a declaration that he is Lord, but as we studied in Romans 4, it is an affirmation that God the Father approved the payment that Jesus Christ made on the cross. Read further here into verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Not only did Christ die for us, not only was he raised for us, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us. Some years ago, one of the themes of our vacation Bible school was the tabernacle. And our children built a tabernacle, Uh, not this one. This is an actual reproduction, uh, perfectly reproduced based on what the scripture says. You can visit it out in the desert of Israel, some of the very places that the Jewish people wandered for 40 years. And when our children studied the tabernacle, which is, of course, a predecessor to the temple, which was a more permanent structure, one of the things that immediately strikes you is that there's no seats in it no chairs, no place for the high priest to sit down. When he went into that sacred section of the tent to make a sacrifice, he never sat down. And in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, it says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Messiah, the Lord Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's done. It's a completed work. There's nothing else left to do. And so not only was He raised, affirming that His payment was accepted, not only is He sat down showing and demonstrating that it was finished, but He intercedes for you. He prays for you. He prays for the needs that you have, for the strength that we need, but He also is our advocate with the Father. When we are accused falsely by the diabolus, the devil, Jesus, intercedes for us. So do you think the Lord Jesus, Judge Jesus, is going to condemn you? The one to whom all judgment was given? The one who died? The one who was raised? The one who ascended? The one who's seated? The one who's interceding for you? No, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that brings us to the fifth declaration. Declaration number five, there is no imaginable separation against the child of God. No imaginable separation. Notice the fifth question here beginning in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now the devil would have you to believe that you can be separated from the love of Christ. He has convinced many a Christian with a false doctrine that you can lose your salvation. The devil would have you to believe that there are grounds by which you can be opposed. There are grounds by which you can be accused. That there are grounds by which you can be condemned. The devil would have you to believe that somehow God is not going to meet all of your needs. That somehow you can be separated from the love of God. And so in this final paragraph here in Romans 8... Paul asks questions to underscore the persistent, steadfast, eternal, unchanging love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what verses 35 to 39 is anticipating. Paul, as we've seen throughout this letter, will anticipate objections that people will have. And so he's thinking of his audience. And some people would say, well, Paul, listen, sometimes life is very, very difficult as a Christian. Are these not at times evidences that God has abandoned us, that God has forgotten us? And so Paul asks here in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he asks actually a series of questions to follow. And each one is actually a question, but we make it kind of one big question. Will tribulation, no tribulation, cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Now, some of your translations say trouble. The King James and the New American Standard says tribulation. And that's important, and I think that is very helpful. Because sometimes in English, as we studied in the fifth chapter of Romans, we kind of put together trials and tribulations. We talk about the trials and tribulations of life. And while it is true that all tribulations are trials, and therefore we ought to count them as joy... Not all trials are tribulations. Tribulations are a subset of trials, and it is used specifically in the Scripture to describe pressure or opposition of an unbelieving world on the child of God. It is a technical term used to describe severe suffering that Christians can experience in this life. Jesus warned that when we come to the end of the age, in Matthew 13, in the Olivet Discourse, He said, for those days will be a time of tribulation. Philipsis, same word, such as has never occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. The Apostle John in Revelation 7 when he's describing the martyred dead who came out of the great tribulation period, he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Philipsis, same word. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, it was used in secular contexts. this word in the first century, to take a heavy sled and to roll it over the wheat that had been harvested to separate the chaff from the straw, the heads of grain from the chaff. In Latin, in the fourth century Latin translation, this word tribulation is translated tribulum. And so it comes into English as tribulation. It speaks of those crushing blows in life. Sometimes we say in the physical realm, I feel like a truck ran over me. Well, in the spiritual realm, sometimes people feel crushed by the blows of life. And that's part of being a Christian. That's why Paul warned those new believers there in Lystra, through many tribulations, same word, we must enter the kingdom of God. But tribulation cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus said there in that upper room, In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so that heartless pressure that an unbelieving world brings upon the Christian cannot separate us from the love of God. So just separate, just cross that off your list. What is the next item on the list? Well, how about distress? You say, well, help me to wrap my mind around the word distress. Just take the first two letters off, D-I, and write the word stress, and you have a good essence of what the Greek New Testament is trying to communicate. It's actually a compound word in Greek. Two words brought together. The first word means a narrow place, like going through a narrow pass in a mountain. And the second word means to press. And so the idea brought together is to confine or to press through a narrow place. And sometimes we have stresses in this life that seem to box us in. Some of you have a job and you think it's a dead end and you're stressed by it. Some of you are stressed by the fact that you have no job. Sometimes you feel squeezed by health problems, by financial obstacles, by family issues that you're walking through, and you feel boxed in in the daily ground, and your space feels very, very narrow. That's why the world, when they advertise, they try to advertise the opposite of stress. They show some lady out in the middle of a field with a clothesline hanging her clothes, Well, there's not many people who use a clothesline anymore, and I've never met a lady out in the middle of nowhere hanging her clothes, but that's what they want to communicate. They never show that brand new vehicle in some traffic jam. No, they showed up there in the Blue Ridge Parkway screaming through the curves because it's unconfined and it has total freedom. Well, Paul wants you to know that no matter how squeezed, how confined you feel in this life, you can cross distress off of your list. Notice the next word. It's very closely related to tribulation, and it's the word persecution. The Greek word means to be rejected, to be ridiculed, to be mocked at, to be mistreated because of your faith. Remember in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks of a farmer to illustrate how the gospel goes out, a farmer who goes out and he sows seed. And the seed falls in different kinds of hearts. And it becomes an explanation in the first three soils of why someone can hear the same message and one person can respond in the fourth soil, but the other three don't. And one of the things Jesus said that would keep some people out of the kingdom of God is persecution. In Mark's Gospel, it says in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy there are some people who come to a church like this or they listen to Billy Graham on television or someone else and they get kind of excited in fact Luke uniquely adds they believe for a while he's not teaching you can lose your salvation when he says in the next phrase they fall away No, some get excited. They believe here in the head, but never in the heart. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Their belief is the same kind of a belief that Simon the sorcerer had in Acts 8, or that the demons who believe and tremble have. No, in a similar way, these are the ones in whom seed was sown in the rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises, because of the word, immediately they fall away. Listen, I've witnessed in the last 23 years I've been the pastor of this church, people who come, some who get very excited, and they're assaulted by the church. That is, the function of salt is to preserve righteousness. They're lit by the church to dispel darkness, and their life starts changing, and they start coming, and some of their friends say, what's going on with you? You're getting kind of fanatical. What are you doing out of that church? What do you mean you don't want to come out and get drunk with us anymore? What do you mean you don't want to go out and pick up women with us anymore? What's got into you? And for some of them, that's all it takes because they're on rocky soil and their excitement soon wanes and they fall away because they've never had genuine Christians. But listen, you can hardly be a member of a Bible-believing church like this in this day and not experience some kind of persecution and opposition from the world. And again, this word, word, unlike tribulation, that is largely used in the physical realm, is used in the verbal realm. You come to a church like this, what was normal in America 40 and 50 years ago is now abnormal. And so people come to a church, they're converted, everything changes the way they think, the way they're raising their children, the way they're spending their money, their morality, everything changes. And people say, what are you, some member of some cult down there? What's going on? And the things that used to be normal in America are now abnormal. And of course, Jesus taught that this would happen as we approach the end of the age. Men would call good evil, and they would call evil good. And that's the day that we live in. There's ridicule. There's mockery. In Acts 13, Luke records, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution. Same word against Paul and Barnabas and they drove them out. While sticks and stones can definitely hurt you, persecution, verbal abuse can knock some Christians off center, but I can tell you that will never, ever, ever separate you from the love of Christ. In fact, God tells us when you are persecuted as a Christian, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a blessing. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Same word, verbal form. When men persecute you and falsely say all sorts of evil against you because of me. Not because you're obnoxious, but because you're living a holy life for Christ. Don't go home sucking your thumb feeling bad. Jesus said rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. So you can just mark persecution off your list. How about famine? Can famine separate us from the love of Christ? Now, while God promises to meet all of our needs because we live in a fallen world, the Bible equal reminds us that sometimes Christians come upon hardship and even famine. Some of our brethren in Africa this morning are hungry. Because of the severe drought that has been going on for seven years in that place. They live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, hardship sometimes comes, and sometimes God is the author of famine, the Scripture teaches. There are many examples, like the people in Elijah's day, like the people in David's day when when Saul was an abusive king. Many examples where God himself takes responsibility for a famine. Why? Because God sees things through an eternal perspective. God, out of his love, sees people who may have an empty stomach, but who will have a fill soul because of the preaching of the gospel and for the first time they have ears to listen death becomes a reality looking at it straight in the face if that won't get a man right nothing will get him right and so sometimes God sinks people his people right in the midst of famine Not because he doesn't want to meet their needs, but because they live in a fallen world, because they experience the same thing an unbelieving world experiences, and he wants them to be his voice box. God doesn't write the gospel in the clouds as we will learn in the 10th chapter of Romans. God has chosen to communicate it through his people. And sometimes we are those calling hungry people to repentance in Christ because we live in them, among them. How about nakedness? Can nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? Now, famine and nakedness are rather obsolete words to the American church so that that could change. Let God turn off the faucet for a while. Let God destroy our crops. Let God burn our forests down. We think we're so high and mighty and smart as Americans that we no longer need God. We can see just how fast we may need Him one of these days. But what about nakedness? We've witnessed this week our brethren in Egypt and more recently in the last six months in Pakistan and India. I'm communicating on a regular basis with a pastor friend in India. The church is suffering greatly there. The Muslims have burnt down their homes. This week it happened to hundreds of Christians, and they have nothing left. Listen, we are so spoiled here in the American church. We need to wake up. We have no room for complacency when we see what many of our brethren are going to. So can famine, can nakedness separate us from the love of Christ? Paul knew what it was like to be cold in prison. He asked Timothy to bring the cloak. Winter's coming. I desperately need it. How about perils? Can perils separate us from the love of Christ? The Greek word is translated different ways in our English text. Danger, hazards, threats. Paul knew by experience peril in many, many instances in his life. When he writes to the Corinthians, he says, in journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, same word, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Earlier in the same letter, when he refers to these dangers, to these perils, he calls it momentary light affliction. Let me read that to you. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so when he evaluates this life in light of the next, he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, we sang about that this morning in the opening hymn, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You say, Paul, you were beaten. Paul, you were starved. Paul, you were lashed. Paul, you were driven out of cities. Paul, you nearly drowned in the Mediterranean. You were hated by your own Jewish brethren. And the Gentiles despised you as well. And you had 35 years of this stuff. And he calls it momentary light affliction. How could he say such a thing? Because he's comparing this life in light of the next. And so we've already studied here in the 8th chapter. If you look down in uh, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We saw that word consider. The King James says, I reckon. We studied it in the sixth chapter. It's a bookkeeping term. and It's a counting term. And so Paul says, on one side of the ledger, I put all the perils of life, and he knew them all. And on the other side of of the ledger, I, I, I put glory, the future life that is in front of us in that marvelous place called heaven. And he says, there's no comparison. One of my brothers in Christ, he's now in his 70s this week he came into my office and he said, you know, my wife and I, we don't want to stop. We want to work until the Lord takes us. He said, a lot of our friends are just sitting back and they're coasting, but we want to work. He said, my wife said to me, we got all of eternity to enjoy. Let's serve him while we can. And that was Paul's, Paul's mindset. He said, listen, the dangers, the perils of this life don't even compare the future glory that is in front of us. So can peril separate us from the love of Christ? Just mark that off your list. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And if you read the list carefully, you discover that Paul experienced every single one of these seven except the last one, the sword. Obviously, he hadn't experienced it yet. That's why he's writing to us. But he will experience it. It's just a matter of time. Nero will literally take the sword and take his head off for the faith. Missiologists tell us at the US Center for World Missions that every year between 600 and 700,000 Christians around the world die because they named the name of Christ. Listen, I don't know how they come up with that number, but if just half of it was correct, it is a huge number. But the Lord Jesus reminded us do not fear those who kill the body. But are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him, God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So you can just mark sword the sword off the list. Nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And to prove this, Paul quotes Psalm 44. You see there, verse 36 in your Bibles. What is it di- What's different about the verse? Look at. Don't look at me. Look at your text. If you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. I'll help you to come see me. You will see in your text, it's all caps, right? That tells you it is an Old Testament quotation. And if you look out in the margin, you will see it's from Psalm 44 in our English Bible, Psalm 43 in the Hebrew and other Bibles of the world. Now, if you know Psalm 44 then you know it depicts the persecution that Israel had from the Gentile nations around them. They were being derided, they were being mocked, they were being reproached, they were being killed, not for discipline by God, but because they were serving God, because they were loving God. And so he says, why are we doing this? The psalmist, if you know the psalm in essence, he says, listen, I don't care what they do. I have determined for your sake, O oh God, because I love you with all of my heart that even if they kill me, I'm going to serve you. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, Paul can use this verse because again, he is about to experience it and the Roman Christians are soon going to experience it in 68 A.D., When Nero, out of his sadistic mind and his warped sense of entertainment, is going to take the Christians there in Rome, literally dip them in oil and make them human torches in his garden. Now those of us who have never had to physically suffer for the cause of Christ, we would do well to read verses 35 to 39 in this passage, but also to read a parallel text, verses 35 to 39 in Hebrews 11. And if you know that section of scripture, we read of a group of unnamed Christians who are tortured, jeered, flogged, chained, stoned, and even cut in two. We see the tremendous price that those early Christians paid to help lay the foundation for the church that we enjoy today. And so we have no room for shallowness or complacency. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Nevertheless, pain, misery, loss of life cannot in any way alienate us from the love of Christ. He says, notice, when he's describing these sheep who are being slaughtered every day, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Now when you think of sheep, you don't usually think of sheep as being a a victorious conquering animal, do you? I certainly don't. They're pretty weak animals. They're very defenseless. Now, we might think of a lion or a cheetah or an elephant or an eagle, but certainly not sheep. I mean, sheep, they don't stand a chance. But please notice here in verse 37 that the victory is not given by the strength of the sheep but by the shepherd through him who loved us, just like King David taught in the 23rd Psalm. It doesn't matter how weak you are. What is important is how strong the shepherd is. Now, do you see those words? We overwhelmingly conquer. They're in the new American standard. And the King James and the ESV, they translate it with four words. We are more than conquerors. Well, whatever translation you have, it's actually one word in Greek, and it's a compound word. It's the word hyper-nikao. Hyper. Now, we think of the word hyper like a, you know, a a hyper three-year-old running around out of control, or a hyper ten-year-old wound up on video games who needs to be, you know, calmed down by Ritalin or whatever they're using to fix the problems. And we think of it generally in a negative connotation but it's actually a positive word. In fact, the Latin translation that Jerome did, he translated it super. It it carries the idea of something that is super terrific, super fantastic, super wonderful. So there's the word hyper, and then there's the word nakao. We uh, bring it right into English as Nike. What does nakao mean? It means victory. In fact, Nike was the goddess of victory that the Romans worshipped. And so there's a a sports company named Nike found on their tennis shoes and basketball shoes and all the other stuff they sell. I mean, there's nothing sweeter than victory. We love it when our team wins, right? Listen to what Paul said. But when this perishable, speaking of his body, will put on the imperishable, speaking of his resurrected body... And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in nakao, in victory. Same word used by John in 1 John 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But for the Holy Spirit, in this instance, as he describes the eternal security of the believer, nakao is not enough. He wants to inflect it. He wants to talk about super victory. And by the way, this is the only place in all of the Bible where this word is found. Paul is saying, listen, in all these circumstances, we are super victorious. We are more than conquerors, the King James says. The CSB says we are more than victorious.
1: The fact that we sinners can become children of God is amazing. But the fact that that relationship is sealed and secure is even more amazing. It's truly a super victory. And next week, we'll spend a little more time looking at this wonderful gift of God. To listen again to today's study, Part 2 of More Than Conquerors, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM42. Tomorrow, Dr. Broogie's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And next Monday, Pastor Carl finishes part two of his message entitled, More Than Conquerors. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.